0: I'm Colleen Cosmo Murphy, founder of Classic Album Sundays. We tell the stories behind the albums that have changed our lives through our worldwide immersive listening events and our website, which hosts artist interview videos, playlists and blogs about our favorite albums. This podcast features a classic album Sunday's presentation from one of the UK's leading music journalists, John Harris, who was friendly with Radiohead in their very early days when they were known as on a Friday and before they became one of the world's most popular post-rock bands. Harris tells the story behind their 1997 LP OK Computer, their breakthrough album, which landed them on the US charts and the number one spot in their native UK. The presentation was recorded live as part of a series of Classic Album Sunday's listening sessions in a lovely chapel at the Lulworth Castle for the Festival Camp Festival. Once you have listened to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to Radiohead's OK Computer uninterrupted and in its entirety. And this way, you can have your own Classic Album Sundays at home.
1: To the Church of Rock. Uh, my name is John Harris. I write for The Guardian. My stock answer when I'm asked what I write about is I say I write about the gap between politics and real life, which is very big at the moment, and I fear it's going to get bigger. Uh, I also uh, write about music for Q and Mojo. I'm 44 years old now, nearly as old as this record. Uh, and <laughs> up until when I was 30, I wrote about music full time. That was all I did, really. Literally all I did. I barely slept. My very small, teeny-tiny role in this story, the story of Radiohead, goes back uh, to 1991. Uh, I was a student at Oxford at that time, for my sins. Um, There were two towns, really, in Oxford, two cities. There was the city centred around the university. I was sort of stuck in that for three years, quite happily as it goes. And there was another part of the city, up the Cowley Road, if anyone knows Oxford, which is where Bohemia was. Uh, And at that point, the city's uh, music scene, for want of a better term, was in a really, really healthy state. Uh, Radiohead were there, Swerve driver, anyone remember them? Supergrass were coming together. A group called the Candy Skins, who briefly did very well in America, much underrated group. It was a great time to be in Oxford, really. Um, I started off writing for a music paper called Sounds, which if you're over 80 years of age, you may remember. <laughs> folded in 1991. It folded every week, but it went under in 1991. <laughs> Uh, And for a brief period, as Colleen said, uh, I then did the same thing. I was what they call a stringer, writing about new groups and reviewing touring bands in Oxford for the Melody Maker. I then went on to write for the NME, where I was much happier. Um, Now, during that time, it's it's interesting to note that we're talking about a world long before uh, email and mobile phones. I don't recall having a mobile phone in 1991. Uh, So the only way of getting in touch with people was to write them a letter, right? So there I was. I was this... uh, this freelance music journalist reviewing gigs and finding new groups on a sort of weekly basis and in my pigeonhole at the college I was at, this being pre-email, if you wanted to have any sense of the outside world, things got put in your pigeonhole, right? Uh, Younger viewers, that was a small space in some wood where they put notes from your mum saying you haven't spoken to me in six weeks, are you dead? and things like that. Uh, And I found a letter in there one day from a fella called Ed O'Brien. It's an A4 sheet of paper, it's very carefully typed and it had the words, on a Friday on the top, right? And it was inviting me to come and check his band out, saying, we're gigging a lot in the Oxford area, you might want to come and see us. Now, in in retrospect, I'm truly ashamed of the fact that I completely ignored that letter. (laughs) For two reasons, right? Firstly, it was very polite. It's a bad rule in rock. Were the Sex Pistols polite? No, they were not. Were the Rolling Stones polite? No, they were not. So that sort of counted against it. And secondly, his band was called Honor Friday. It's the worst name I'd ever seen. I thought, well, you're not going to be much cop with a name like that. That sounds like a sort of hobby band. So I thought nothing of it. And then sometime later, maybe about eight months later, I got a call from a fellow called Philip Hall, who some of you may have heard of, the late Philip Hall. Philip Hall uh, was a manager. He managed the Manic Street Preachers. He was the Manic Street Preachers' great mentor. He also did PR for a load of groups, starting with the Pogues all the way through at the Stone Roses. He was the Stone Roses' mentor to some extent. Um, And he called me up. He He was a very savvy, clever uh, PR guy who knew how to break a group and he wasn't sniffy about people who only wrote small reviews in Oxford for the Melody Maker. He didn't just go straight mm-hmm. to the so-called big fellas. He came to me and he said, well, this band on a Friday. I said, I'm oh, not there. What a shit name. <laughs> he said, no, no, they've signed to EMI. This is why I'm sh- ashamed in retrospect. Really, it's, It doesn't really put me in a terribly great light, but he said, they're all right. You know, they're pretty good. They're taking it slowly. They're playing in Oxford soon, supporting the candy skins and you ought to go. So I did go. And I wrote a little over 250 words, a tiny little review for The Melody Maker, uh, describing what I saw that night. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. A lot of it, I think, quite justifiably reminded me of a load of groups from the uh, Northeastern Seaboard of the US who were fashionable and popular at that time. Pixies, Throw Muses, Buffalo Tom, Uh, Ed O'Brien, who had a terrible bowl haircut, as I recall. He was playing a Rickenbacker guitar, so I thought, oh, maybe this is a bit like The Jam. They've got a sort of mod thing going on, maybe. Uh, Tom York seemed very small, I remember that, seemed very short. (laughs) He had uh, very close cropped hair, almost a skinhead. Uh, And there was a sort of punk rock thing going on, but then every now and again you'd get flashes of quite a sort of melodic, borderline commercial sensibility. I remember particularly that song Stop Whispering, some of you may have heard. They definitely played that and I remember making a mental note of that. I later found out that Johnny Greenwood, by far the coolest member of the group at that point, bought his tops at Chelsea Girl. So I thought, well, this is quite this is more interesting than I thought, you know. Now, I only had 250 words, so I sort of went through their influences, I talked about how intense their general sort of sensibility seemed, uh, and I also devoted a paragraph to the sheer awfulness of their name. <laughs> I said, on a Friday might be an appropriate name for a load of uh, beer-gutted pub rockers, I think I said, but not a group as good as this. Uh, And the last uh, sentence in the review said, promising seems something of an understatement. In those days, I capably avoided cliché with conclusions like that, but there you go. Uh, Now that, as I later understood it, was a very small one of several reasons why they decided to change their name to Radiohead, taken from a Talking Heads song. They then released an EP called Drill. Uh, the lead song of which was called Prove Yourself, a song about Oxford, which, as I recall, I think went to number 83 in the charts. There's a brilliant story about Colin Greenwood on tour going into an hour price in Trowbridge in Wiltshire, as I recall, and thinking it was a great moment. He was about to buy his first single. And he went in, he said, can I buy that? And the bloke said, we can't give him away. Just take it.
0: (laughs) Can't afford to breathe in this town Nowhere to sit without a gun in
1: There then came a single called Creep. By this time I was writing for the NME. We all thought Creep was the business at the NME. I got commissioned to write a big feature. Creep didn't do significantly better. It was released twice, don't forget. The first time it came out, it didn't sell any at all. I own both those uh, CDs. and It's only in mint condition if anyone wants to make me an offer. it might pay for my Sunday at camp festival. So anyway.
0: <laughs> when you were here before Couldn't look you in the eye just like an angel skin makes me cry you float like a feather
1: in a beautiful world there were a couple of singles after that which did a little bit better then an album a debut album called Pablo Honey which i reviewed for the enemy i gave it 7 out of 10 Uh, I sort of said they were heading in the right direction, but it didn't really feel to me like anything spectacular was going to happen with this group. The idea, if you told me then, that I'd be standing in a church, facing a perfect line of candles, and somewhere in the region of 70 or 80 people, talking about this record, uh, this group would have seemed frankly absurd. But it happened. And it happened really because of a key watershed event in Radiohead's career, which is when, quite a long time after it had been released in the UK, Crete became a hit record in America. Uh, this was round about the time that so-called grunge music was at its apex. The sort of culture of self-loathing became fashionable, so you can imagine a record whose chorus goes, I'm a creep, I'm a weirdo, was going to do good business. <laughs> and so it proved. And Radiohead went a bit weird at this point, from my perspective. I can recall interviewing them round about the time they'd become successful in America, and suddenly they didn't have bowl bowled haircuts, and Johnny Greenwood's shirt was not from Chelsea Girl, and Tommy Yorke did not have a two-pound close-cropped haircut. Uh, He looked a bit like one of Motley Crue, the heavy metal band. He'd had hair extensions put in, which I thought was a bit odd. (laughs) There were a lot of leather jackets, sort of big male jewellery and expensive shoes. They also had suntans, as I recall. It was all quite incongruous. That didn't last, though. Um, They didn't really sustain the momentum in the States that Creeper generated. And there was a slight sense of them coming back to Britain with their tail between their legs. And then they had to make a second album. Uh, And on the road to that, a record came out, this is my numerological theory of years, ending in four, in 1994, called My Iron Lung. It was a standalone single. It's an amazing fact about that record that 90% of it was recorded live at the Astoria in London. They took the sound straight from the soundboard. I think only the the vocal track was redone. It's a great record. The subject matter is that's a song about creep. The iron lung in the title is the song they depend on for their careers. An interesting song. It had a little debt to uh, Nirvana, but it was obviously an interesting step forward. Then the next thing that happened uh, in 1995 in Oxford, EMI flew in all of their sort of key staff from around the world. They booked an amazingly opulent party at the Randolph Hotel, which, if anyone knows, Oxford is the poshest hotel in Oxford. Uh, and radio had played, supported by Supergrass. Uh, at the Apollo in Oxford, just sort of 1,500, 2,000 capacity theatre. and I haven't heard the bends at that point, and they played pretty much all of the bends. And there were two things sticking stick in my head, really. One is here in Planet Telex for the first time, probably the most underrated song in Radiohead's canon. I think it's a brilliant piece of work. You confess it, but it will not come.
0: You can it, but
1: Uh, And the second thing was those opening chords of the bends, down, 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 like they were ringing the changes. That's what it felt like. plagiarised the great rock critic Charles Charles Murray, something he wrote about the jam in 1978. I think the last sentence of the review I wrote of that gig said something like, Look out all you rock and rollers. Again, avoiding cliche. <laughs> From now on, Radiohead are the ones to beat. It felt like that. The Benz was a critical success. If you think about Street Spirit, Fade Out, Just Bones, Black Star, there's no doubt at all that record was an artistic triumph. It's still some people's favourite Radiohead album. It did pretty well. And conceivably Radiohead could have carried on in that vein and had a reasonable career it might have seen them right for you know six or seven years then according to modern rules they would have then split up and come back and cleaned up because that's what everybody does didn't work out that way in 1996 and by this point don't forget so called Britpop was at its absolute peak right everyone in rock seemed to wear a cagoule pretend to like the Beatles they have a semi-acoustic guitar and music was pretty awful by 1996 I was editing a magazine called Select by this point the nadir of my career as a journalist was yet to come. That was putting the stereophonics on the cover. That hurt.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it wasn't great in 19... 19- let alone with the cover line Band of the Year, No Contest. Not my idea. <laughs> what year, really? Um, 1996 was pretty awful. Cast and Cooler Shaker had a shared cover.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but there were ads. We didn't know this at the time. Burrowing away in a mansion house they'd rented from the actress Jane Seymour then uh, sort of in the twilight of her years as a Bond girl, now the face of the, uh, the women's clothing chain, country casuals, who knew? <laughs> and there they were in this mansion house, very scary atmosphere, they said, which you can kind of hear in the music. If you listen to exit music, you can tell it was not recorded in an orthodox studio. It sounds like a space not unlike this or that big castle over there. And they were listening to music that completely defied this fellow in a cagoule, semi-acoustic guitar, I like the Beatles atmosphere. Bitches Brew by Miles Davis, big influence on this record, which you can hear in Subterranean Homesick Alien, the, the sheer sense of scale and the electric piano. Bitch's Brew, it's quite a difficult listen, but it's a, it's a big record. It sounds like somebody exploring out space, basically.
0: The breath of the morning, I keep forgetting, the smell of the warm summer air. I live in a town where you can't smell a thing. You watch your feet, the cracks in the
1: pain. They like DJ Shadow a lot. You can hear a drum loop on Airbag, which is inspired by DJ Shadow. Exit music that I mentioned a moment ago, partly inspired by Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison. Noel Gallagher was not listening to this sort of music. Wake from your sleep
0: The drying of your tears Today we escape we're
1: the other key influence, uh, particularly on climbing up the walls, was Johnny Greenwood's love of the classical composer Christoph Penderecki. Okay, which is not a Britpop record. We're not in Kansas now. <laughs> Um, They were determined, really, to break out of being an orthodox guitar band. Johnny Greenwood said around this time, just when we've got what we suspect to be an amazing song, no one knows what they're going to play on it. You'll hear on this record, not just guitars, keyboards, strings, electronic effects. It stands, really, at twice or three times removed from everything else that was happening at that time. And not just in musical terms, either. In terms of its mood... It's an odd time, you know. I recently wrote a piece in The Guardian about Tony Blair and Tesco and their parallel fate. They both sort of peaked in the 1990s and they both thought they were for everybody, right? How wrong they were. And that was a time, really, as I recall it, not everywhere by any means, but certain places, big cities particularly, and London certainly, were full of this sort of giddy, weird, partly sort of drug-assisted optimism. This idea that everything had been settled, you know. History had ended in about 1989. Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, The End of History, 1989. Uh, And there was this idea that the economic boom was going to go on forever. Gordon Brown thought he got rid of the economic cycle. One of many ways in which he was an idiot. And it really felt like that. And Britpop reflected it. If anyone knows that awful Oasis song, All Around the World, which ends um, Be Here Now, you know. It goes round and round for endless minutes with this refrain, I know what I know, it's going to be okay. Of a piece, really, with this time. 1997 in May, that new Labour landslide, there we all are like fools jumping around because Michael Portillo's lost his seat thinking it's the revolution. Oh, (laughs) certainly I was. It may have been what I was drinking. Um, It was a very odd time, full of this sort of optimism. And then this record appears. There were two or three records during this period, 1997, which definitely said, look, life's more complicated than that. Another one is Vanishing Point, the Primal Scream record, came out in 1997. Another one is Ladies and Gentlemen, We're Floating in Space, the Spiritualized Record. I used to think Urban Hymns by The Verve was like that, but I've now realised it's a load of pompous crap, so I won't mention that. (laughs) Took me about four years to figure that out. Anyway, OK Computer fractures that. What is it? It says something very, very different. If it's about anything, it seems to me that it's about the modern condition, broadly speaking, a constant sense of sensory overload, a deluge of information, Moments of fear within that, right? It's almost predicting the world that we live in now. You know, Web 2.0 and everyone spending 24 hours a day staring at their black screen. None of that had happened, but this record kind of anticipates it. That sense of fear, very modern fear, is there in Paranoid Android. All those lyrics: crackling pigskin, yuppies networking, the vomit, the vomit. Always that cheer you up, Tommy. Uh, But it's also, it's not one of the the same way that people say, oh, the Smiths are a miserable group. It's a complete misapprehension. Equally, to understand OK Computer as a record that's all sort of tortured and angsty is misplaced. Because there's lots in it which is about life-affirming moments. It's about little snatches of beauty and relief and peace within all this sensory overload. If you think about No Surprises, that's a classic example of that. Equally, Airbag, the theme of Airbag, it's about survival, it's about euphoria. So it's a complex record, full of light and shade. Musically, it's also full of a quality which you don't really get in rock at the moment, and I wish it would come back, which is a sense of space. That's so why vinyl is a perfect medium to listen to it. Very often, Airbag, again, is a good example. You won't hear much more at any given moment than bass and drums, so It uses silence really, really well. piece of work really. I would argue that, that thus far, and I'm not one of those people, I heard someone, interviewing Viv Albertine the other, yesterday or the day before, moaning that rock music was all over and it didn't say anything anymore. I don't buy that, you know. I still buy records. I still think rock music is full of potential. But thus far, up to now, this is the last record which combined being hugely commercially successful with being uh, amazingly original. Now I will confess, in 1997, I was called to the offices of Hall or Nothing, Philip Hall's company. Philip Hall tragically had died by then, but the company was still in existence. They said, we're gonna play you this new Radiohead record. And they left me upstairs with, as I recall, a pretty awful little boombox to listen to it on. And I honestly thought people wouldn't get it. I thought, this is pretty good. You know, this is kind of out there, isn't it? But you know, I'm not sure this is gonna sell many. Their record company felt the same way. Uh, sales projections were downgraded. I think they thought they were going to do a million and a half and it came down to about 400,000, their projection. They didn't know what they had. Certainly the American company thought it was a turkey. They were signed to Parlophone, which doesn't really exist anymore. Parlophone fell victim to when EMI was bought out. But Parlophone was an artist-driven label. Uh, their A&R man was called Keith Rosencroft. He was one of those people who would stick with a group if he thought they were good. Again, something which isn't really there in the music industry at the minute, but it was there then. So I thought it wouldn't, they wouldn't, people wouldn't really get it. I wouldn't sh- wasn't sure what it was, was going to do, but how wrong I was. It's rightly seen as one of the best albums of its time. When magazines run those awful, boring uh, best albums of the 90s things, which they do about once a year, it tends to come near the top. Um, and it's also, as far as I can recall, the only album thus made, thus far made, which begins with a song about narrowly avoiding death in a motorway pileup while driving a fast German car. I think it's a brilliant record. It's perfectly suited to vinyl. I hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, OK Computer.
0: That interview is recorded at a Classic Album Sunday's listening session at Camp Festival with our special guest, journalist John Harris. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to our weekly Classic Album Sunday's podcast via your favorite podcast provider and keep your ears open for our next one, an excerpt from our This Woman's Work series, this one focusing upon the story behind the B-52's debut album with special guests, founding B-52 member Kate Pearson and uber-fan Jake Shears of the Scissor Sisters. If you would like to find out more about Classic Album Sundays, head over to our website where you can find info on how to join as one of our Patreon members to attend our virtual online events, meetups, and streams. I'm Colleen Cosmo-Murphy, and now I encourage you to transport yourself into another world and have a listen to Radiohead's OK Computer following our listening guidelines. Turn off your phone, refrain from conversation, turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and then listen to the album all the way through without interruption. Thanks for listening.